You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Atisha Gray is best known for her team of working dogs and their adventures on her family's cattle station in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Given her cult following on social media, appearance on the ABC's TV show Muster Dogs, and release of a book by the same name, you'd be forgiven for thinking she's been working with dogs her whole life. But that's not the case. In this episode, Atisha tells the story of how she became the first person in her family and local region to use a team of working dogs on a cattle station. A few months ago, Atisha and I had our first children just a week apart, and we recorded this episode while nursing our bobs. So you'll notice there's a few ad breaks and some sound effects. This is the first time I've recorded a podcast with my child present, and we're pretty happy with the episode. We didn't get through everything we wanted to, but hey, Atisha, if you're listening, that just means you'll have to come back for a part two. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode. How many podcasts have you done with boobs hanging out? We're recording and I'm leaving that in. <laughs> uh, I think this is the first. I think. Yeah. 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 Surprising. So uh, for anyone listening that would like the reference to that, Atisha and I are just both breastfeeding our children at the moment. So <laughs> it's nothing nefarious going on. We're just providing a source of life to our children. How things have changed since (laughs) the last time we hung out. You need a big red light on that to say when it's recording. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. Whoops, my bad. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, Tish. Thanks, Steph. It's nice to have you on here finally. Finally. Yeah, finally caught me. And uh, for anyone listening, we might sound a bit different today, the audio quality, because bless you. Uh, If you couldn't hear, that was my child sneezing in the background. Um. Because normally I have quite a big microphone set up uh, like this and it's quite heavy and it's a big mixing board and all this gear, but I've actually flown interstate to visit my family because I had a baby and I've come down to visit you because you've had a baby and so I've just got little lapel mics on. So if we sound a bit different, yeah, we're just using uh, so some slightly more, well, a lot smaller gear. I think it weighs like, I don't know, it feels like it weighs a gram. It's very light, whereas the other thing's like 20 kilos, so... Anyway, um, yeah, we both are feeding our children that were born a couple of months ago, basically around the same time, which is pretty cool. So you're stuck with me like we're connected for life forever now. (laughs) But anyway, I will get into the episode properly. I usually like to start off asking people what they were like as a child. I I was a brat. Very cheeky, and uh, I actually blame that on my brother being such a nice kid that it made me seem worse. I had to even it out, right? But no, I was always shy. I always loved my animals more than more than socialising, especially with kids my own age. So I think that was partly growing up so isolated. I found it a lot easier to interact with adults than kids, and even now, I suppose I'm shy 
still to a point and just, yeah, Tell like <laughs> like our own company. <laughs> and then you've had me visiting for 24 <laughs> hours. You're like, okay, it's time for you to go. <laughs> Tell me more about being a brat though because I remember you put that in your book as well mm. and I was really surprised to read that. Um, although, disclaimer, I'm listening to the audio book, guys. But how especially- far through are you? Halfway. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's busy times of the baby, okay? Um, I'm already cheating taking the audiobook route instead of reading the book and then I couldn't even finish it. I was like, oh, bad friend. Um, but, yeah, so what do you mean by being a brat? Because it just that does not seem like you. You always just seem so quiet and, like, put together and softly <laughs> spoken and responsible. Well, uh, the earliest story I have from that, mum used to say that I was a little firecracker of the family. And I think when I was about two, so my brother's about two years older than me, and I'd always get him into trouble. So things like we'd be playing with a ball and I'd throw it on the roof and then I'd ask Murray to go and get it off the roof for me. As soon as he'd climb on the roof, I'd go, Mum, Murray's on the roof, and dob on him. So <laughs> I used to manipulate him so that. And Mum said, you're being manipulated by a two-year-old, no. <laughs> so, Savage. yes, I was, I was a cheeky, very cheeky child. Um, but... Uh, yeah, we're we're really close. He's um he's just yeah he's a beautiful guy. <laughs> I was gonna say the way you, you like you write about him in the book is mm. yeah it's a it's a relationship to envy. Like a you think that you know siblings are always fighting and oh I, I guess I know a lot of people that have close siblings, but it sounds like you guys went the other way, like your best mates rather than like at each other's throats. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is how we grew up is we only really had each other until. Yeah, Murray went to boarding school and thing. We didn't really have other kids to play with unless we were at school camp. So I think that that situation played a big part in us being so close. And also, I guess the personalities, like Murray's personality is, um, yeah, it's just so easy to get along with as well. And I think that's a big part on why I don't, at this stage, I don't really want to just have one child. I'd like us to have two because that sibling relationship was so precious to me. So I've never really wanted to have one. If we're going to have one, we have to have two. Though my luck, we'll have twins and we'll have three. So (laughs) we'll see what happens. I'm going to put out in the universe triplets. (laughs) Please, no. (laughs) And so what sort of things did you used to do as kids on the station together? Like how would you keep yourself occupied? So we had our motorbikes, a little Pee Wee 80, and we would go down the creek a fair bit. We're involved in all aspects of the station, like the mustering and – and all sort of parts of the work, I suppose, don't know that we're necessarily helpful, but we're sort of out there as much as possible. Um, we both had horses. He, Mary, <laughs> Mary was really good at trying to like teach, but I was a really bad student. So he'd be like trying to show me, especially once he went to school, boarding school, he'd be showing me how to play cricket and play football and things with him. And yeah, I wasn't the best student. <laughs> I didn't like being taught. <laughs> Poor fella. You uh, didn't have 24-hour power either growing up, so it's not like you had a chance to stay inside in the air con and watch, like, VHS videos or anything, did you? We had very limited – we used to have the old Nintendo. Um, I still love that, like Mario Kart and <laughs> and that, but very limited amount of time. So the engine would run for six hours a day, three hours in the morning, three hours at night. That was it. The rest of the time there was no power. We didn't get 24-hour power until 2000, and that's the same year I went to boarding school. <laughs> You're like, why? Yeah. Why? Just, but you also – but. Just because you got power then, you didn't get aircon then, did you? We didn't get aircon until I think it was about three years ago. 
And honestly, now I go, how did we survive? Listening to the power cut out at about 2 a.m. in the morning because then you knew that your, like the fan was going to stop. So I would wake up to listen to the fan stop and then it's just instant heat and sweat and horrible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> horrible. I'm, now that we've had, we've got kids here with us, I'm just thinking if you imagine trying to have a baby like if you needed a baby monitor or if you wanted to play white noise or have a nightlight for a toddler or a young child. like Or just being able to regulate the temperature so it's not so hot. Yeah. And that's probably a big part of why we have moved south um, for a while. We were already going to have a break from the station because I've lived there since I was five, but really wanted a chance. Like I didn't to live closer to family and I didn't want to be a new first-time mum with a baby, a newborn, that isolated so even my parents like Murray was seven I was five when we moved up there so we went up there for the newborn stage and our station is very isolated um so yeah we just took the chance then to to go right now it's time time to try something new and then we'll see where we end up yeah so speaking of the station and we will get to where you are and and why why you're taking a break later on but tell us about Glenflory because it's a very beautiful country and I have actually written a blog on it before <laughs> hi my my child has just learned to make these sounds in the last couple of days so great authentic background noise um <laughs> she's just fascinated by all these things um baby brain it's a real thing guys but your driveway is 90 kilometers of dirt road and it's not like a straight run like there's lots of why it goes up and down it curves around things it's a beautiful drive but you have to really pay attention because otherwise you'll drive off um so to to collect your mail is a 180 kilometer round trip thereabouts yeah yeah it's wild (laughs) yeah and it's funny because one thing i've always wanted i don't know why but i've always wanted to be able to just walk to the end of the driveway and get your mail out of the mailbox like it's just and when we bought our farms I was so excited. I thought finally we'd be able to do that. But the mail run stopped about three farms for four hours. So we still had to drive for it. Okay. That's uh, huge. Time to pause the podcast. We have just had a projectile vomit. All right, so we're back now uh, after a short intermission where uh, my child has got a new outfit and is now um, half feeding, half sleeping. Uh, Your child is sleeping. We've both shoved down some food. So let's smash out this podcast while we've got some semi-free time. Mm. All right, so I think where we left off is I'd been asking you about Glen Flory and if you could describe it because it is quite a spectacular country. Yeah, it is it is very beautiful. It's very harsh. Um, a lot of rocks, a lot of spin effects. We don't have much soft river country. It's It's been known in the past as a battler's block and it's probably not wrong. It's, yeah, it. It's lovely though. Like there's something special about it. I don't think I could have lived somewhere that didn't have the hills and the country that Glen Flory did. And maybe that's because I grew up there, but it's, there's something special about it. Um, but it's not, 
easy by any means either. And it's in this uh, funky horseshoe shape, which makes it interesting for logistics because, yeah, it's a lot of travelling, a lot of portable panels and and things involved in managing the station. So for people who aren't familiar with stations, what do you mean by, like, it's not easy country? Like, what is it about, and you said you didn't have much river country, what is it about that that makes it easier or better? Uh, just the amount of feed that it can grow. Like, it doesn't have soft river country that grows a lot of grass easily that has flood out. Uh, when the river runs and floods, we don't have a lot of, like, floodplains, or any really. So just the we don't have the same bulk quantity of feed that you can get on some softer on some better stations so it, that in that it restricts the number of cattle that you're able to run and your stocking rate and yeah and because we've got a lot of the hills um we also have to be very careful about erosion <clears throat> because of the the way the rain can come down in those creeks with a lot of pace behind it then if the country is degraded then it is very prone to soil erosion so would you say it's quite fragile country yeah i think it is i mean i think most countries to be honest um but i think glenfory is quite fragile and we have learned that the hard way and we've been changing our management practices now to really try and respect that a bit more and and hopefully then we'll be able to start repairing some of the damage okay so let's talk about that then so i guess it, it almost sounds like uh like two ends of the extreme like it's harsh rugged country but at the same time it's very <clears throat> fragile mm. so again i just want to make sure for anyone listening that hasn't been out in stations or isn't you know in farming that they understand like can can know what that means so what's some of the i guess damage that has been done and how does it come about so if the country if you if it loses uh like its soil cover um so if the grass gets eaten down too much if there's too much impact um, by hooves and which makes it you know loose and fragile if you then have water coming down if you have an extreme rain event water comes down with pace it just takes all that topsoil away so especially because it gets so dry between rain events too you know we get a lot of willy willies and things picking up shifting dust and dust storms and so it's quite easy for your topsoil to disappear I always say our topsoil is sitting about three stations away downstream. But, <laughs> yeah, it's – ground cover is key. Just trying to keep some some grass and, and leaf matter and shrubs, trees, everything on, on your soil so that it holds it together. So when you do have those big rain events, you don't watch it disappear. Yeah, and so because you're in the Pilbara, it's – not like you get like a nice sprinkling of showers. You, when you do get rain, which we'll get to in a little bit, is not that often. But when you do get it, you get it in these big, big storms. It can be, definitely can be. Uh, winter rain generally seems to be um, steadier, softer. But you, we can have cyclones. You can have your summer storms come through with a lot of lightning and thunder, and and they can be a very short, sharp downpour. We were really lucky after the recent drought that the rains we had come through then and the subsequent year were actually really kind. Like it, it could have been often a drought is is broken by a flood and we were really lucky that we didn't have really damaging wet events after that, thank God, because the country was at its lowest. You know, so there was a real opportunity there for a lot more damage to be done. So... One thing I have learnt is that it doesn't actually matter how much 
rain you get as much as how you get that rain. Yes. So, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, we've had 200 mils this year, but if you had 100 mil of that fell overnight, you know, in a flood event, it's actually not going to be that effective. So effective rain, there's a big difference between what you read in the gauge and what is actually yes, getting Yes, that's grass. one of my favourite things, like, to say, like, yeah, if someone's like, oh, because um, we've got a Facebook group, like, with how much people, how much rain people are getting around stations in WA and there's one in the territory, and you might be like, oh, oh, my gosh, such and such got 200 mils last night. But if they've got, like, so I guess one of the things um, which you would have heard before is about having your country rain ready because if it's if you've got no ground cover and you've got hard, like, um, clay pan surfaces or cra- you know crusts on top it's gonna the rain's gonna hit and then it runs it goes somewhere else it doesn't necessarily infiltrate so sometimes you know somebody who got 20 mils might actually have had more infiltration than someone who got 200 mils mm-hmm. because their country was in a state to pre- like to receive to that receive. rain yeah so yeah and we always said that if if it's drizzle or really nice steady rain especially drizzle if that's worth double of what you're reading in the gauge because it has all absorbed. You've been able to soak it all in. So if you go, oh, we only have five mil of drizzle, you're like, but that five mil, that's all soaked in. And so that's that's gold. How long has Glenflory been in the family for? Because it's you're the third generation, is that right? Yeah. So um, my family moved up there in 93. My granddad on my dad's side bought it in 85, I believe it was. So what's that? Almost 40 years. Yeah, almost. Yeah. So I know you said it's a battler's block and it's a tough block, but to have been able to stay in the family for that long, I guess, shows that you guys are doing something right out there. And I'm sure each generation has been doing, you know, their own things to try and look after country. So when when did you kind of get handed the reins as manager? Uh, I think it was around about the 2015 Mark, 2015, 2016. So you would have been in your mid-20s. I was mid-20s. Yeah. Yeah. And I did say at the time, like, I'm not ready to be here absolutely permanently, like living here like I'm married with kids because I'm not and I still want to be able to go travel. And so I was really lucky in that I was there for most of the year, but I still had opportunities to go and travel over summer. And so that's when I was able to go to America twice and – and things like that, and go on a road trip. So I was really fortunate in that way, but I did spend the majority of the time then back at home. How do you go about, I mean, I guess the fact that you were able to like become manager in your mid-20s shows that your family's supportive and, you know, that that wasn't necessarily an issue. So how do you go about, I guess there's just so much in being a manager. Like you kind of have to be good or at least a little bit good at so many different things. Um, You soon find out pretty fast (laughs) if you're not good in an area. Uh, Yeah, I guess I was so lucky and I think I really recognise this when when you have people who who haven't grown up with it because I learned so much of it without really realising I was learning it Uh, growing up there as a kid. And, and just being involved in everything. Whereas coming in older, if I came into it as a 25 year old and then had to learn everything from scratch, it was a lot steeper learning curve. So in a lot of ways, I was really fortunate to have grown up and, and learnt so much of it that way. And I guess I knew the property really well. My family was very supportive. Um, in a lot of ways, I wish they'd 
we had more siblings because then I'd have someone else to pass it on to. But there was a lot of responsibility, I suppose, that I felt because I was, I'm the youngest. So the buck sort of stops with me. There was no one else then to take it on. So, but yeah, my family was very supportive. They were very supportive then when I got into dogs. I don't think I would have done it. I would have enjoyed it anywhere near as much if I hadn't been uh, sort of running my dogs alongside of it. And it was that opportunity to really um, get the most out of my dogs and, and myself and and the stock handling, I had to unlearn a lot of bad habits with my stock handling. So in some ways it would have been benefit coming into it without knowing anything <laughs> because you don't have to unlearn all the stuff you've already you've already been doing. Um, but yeah, it's it was fun. It was I really enjoyed it, and it's something we could definitely go back to. But I'm also enjoying having a break from it for a while. Yeah, well, as as we'll get to, like you pretty much been there your whole life mm. from the age of five. So well earned to have a break and have some time away, seeing what it's like having an actual winter. Yeah. <laughs> a winter where it's cold at night and during the day, mm-hmm. not a winter where it's freezing at night and then still 30 degrees during the day. Uh, so you had your dogs when you became manager already? Yes. Okay. Um, I got my dogs in 2013. So what was it? I mean, obviously when you – when you get to be manager, like you get to start calling some shots, but because it's a family business, I'm guessing there's still probably a lot of like consultation and bouncing ideas off each other. And it's not like my way or the highway, like I'm the boss now, I'm going to do this, this and this, but I'm guessing you had your own ideas about things you wanted to try. So what were things of dogs being one of them? What, what was it like trying to introduce those concepts? Was, was everyone pretty supportive or were you like kind of scared to be like, Hey, I know this has been around and you guys have been doing this a lot longer than me, but I kind of want to try something really different. Yeah, I guess uh, I was lucky. My family were very supportive. My my mum was extremely supportive and my brother, my dad was very sceptical. But I think it was also a bit of a um, – for me to take on this role, they had to give me the freedom to be able to do it my way. Same as when my brother was managing there, he was able to implement different things and he – you know, we started using solar pumps instead of windmills. And so he incorporated his own changes when he was there as well. So for me to stay there, um, I needed that bit of freedom because otherwise you know, you've, you've got to have the interest there and the passion there to make you want to stay as well. So, But it was being able to introduce and utilise dogs so that my goal was to be to not need as many staff. Um, and then also being able to start educating our cattle so that they were easier handles so that we, again, wouldn't need so many staff because I do generally prefer working with dogs and people most days. <laughs> but no, we've, we've been lucky. And I also was really lucky in that most of the staff we had come through and working for us were great and really supportive of me um, being in charge. I didn't really have many issues in being, you know, the daughter of the family and a female and things like that. So I had a really great experience in that way as well. Um, but, yeah, we had a lot of wins. We had a lot of learning curves. But I am actually really proud of, I mean, there's so there's so many more projects and things I would have loved to have, have done and we still, like, we still have so many plans and goals for Glenflory. But at the same time, I am really proud of where we've got to. I'm so proud of what we're able to achieve with 
with my dogs and with our cattle and where we got them to in that point. So, All right. So I do want to talk about your dogs, which is, is I guess, how everyone knows you. So a little bit Insta-famous. <laughs> my dogs are. Pilbara working dogs, <laughs> yes. Uh, you've got a book out and the book came about because you're on the TV show Muster Dogs. Mm. Um, but, yeah, people have been following you for a very long time before that. So growing up, you there wasn't a team of working dogs on the station. I know you said your dad had the odd, like a single dog at a time and they weren't Kelpies. So how did you get into working dogs? Probably the first bit that sparked my interest actually was a trip in New Zealand and I saw, um, you know, two or three dogs being used over there. So heading dogs and hunting dogs, uh, hunterways. And, and that sort of sparked my interest in going, wow, like there's more to it. I, before that, I had absolutely no concept of dogs being used in a team or dogs actually being used effectively like they were just hadn't ever been considered as a significant part of the crew or actually really that helpful uh, we did have the token healers growing up they were not helpful and then a friend of mine helped me get to a, a neil mcdonald working dog school up at Geraldton by offering a free pup out of one of the litters that she had if I was able to get up for the school, which was extremely generous. And uh, it really helped me sort of convince my family that it was it was worth going to because uh, it's a lot – I think there's a lot more acceptance for it now, but, you know, cattle educating, wean educating, even training dogs and, and the need for it, there really wasn't much – uh, understanding of that, I suppose. Like people go, why? Why do you need to train a dog? You just have a dog, and they, you know what to do, or assume you know how to train it. Um, same with cattle. Like, why would you educate stock? You just get them in the yards. You have to educate them. But now you say, well, it's, you, know, you don't just expect a horse to know how to be ridden. You spend the time showing it how to be ridden, and that's the same with a dog. You don't get a dog and expect it to know what to do. Like you have to sort of show it how how to how to work and things and bring out that natural instinct. Um, and so after I went to the school and then I just saw Neil there with his dogs and what they can do and it's just, it was kind of like the penny dropping. It was just I found this missing part that I didn't actually realise I was missing. I'd always sort of felt, I suppose, just a little bit, I don't know if lost is the right word, but I wasn't really sure where I was going or what I was doing or just um, – but I just remember that when I got home from that school, I was like, this is it. This is the bit that I was missing and this is what I want to do. And and so it was good from that point. I'd always been so locked in and and um, I suppose connected to the station. But from then on, my sort of my – it shifted to my dog. So as long as I had my dogs with me, I, I was home. Yeah, yeah, I had that. So then I was able to go travelling and, and they were mine. It was the first time I'd really had – something that was purely mine, my decision, my call. It wasn't part of the family business. No one else had a say in what I did with them or, you know, what I bought, what I sold, anything like that. So that was sort of my first taste of independence, I think, which was massive. Were you aware of – was there anyone else in the Pilbara or I guess you're like, you know, the Gascoigne areas that you knew of that were using teams of working dogs on stations? None that I knew of, no. And – um, so apart from the friend who, who gave me the pup and they is this have the a, friend I'm thinking of? Yeah. Wendy Pence. Nope. That's not who I'm thinking of, but cool. No. Hi, um, Wendy. Courtney Robinson. Yeah. She also 
helped convince me. She and Wendy both sort of um, convinced me to get to the school. But, yeah, so Wendy, um, she had a few dogs by that stage as well. But I really hadn't seen them working until we went to the school. And everyone thought I was crazy because I went over east and I bought four going dogs and I obviously had the pup. And right, going on with the horse analogy, it's, I guess it's like you don't ex- – if you're going to get started, if you don't know how to ride, you don't go and buy a yearling that's never been ridden, right? You go and buy an old plotter who has been ridden, who knows how to be saddled up and he's going to look after you. So you can get the feel of what it's meant to feel like to be able to successfully ride. But so many of us go and get a pup or a yearling who doesn't know how to be ridden and then expect to learn together. And you can get there, but it's a long way around it. So I invested in four going dogs um, and and a pup and started from from there so they were able to teach me how to work a dog and work stock with dogs so my, and most of the time they ignored me because I wasn't telling them the right thing to do so they would just do their job um, and they're an amazing team to start with I was really lucky but I think that put me a couple of years ahead too. How I'm just thinking like it's pretty there's a lot of courage there to have this idea and then to follow through on it when no one else in the area is doing it. Like it's one thing to have a team of working dogs down south on a small farm in cool weather, you know, well, not not making it, I don't want to try and oversimplify or make it sound easier, but like we said, you've got a, a big property, it's extreme, weather extremes, it's hard country and no one else in the region is doing it. So, you know, it was a, a fairly big gamble to see, you know, can this idea be replicated in this environment? Yeah, I guess it was. Uh, I guess that's a benefit to being a bit of a hermit is that I didn't have to go out and hear what everyone was saying about <laughs> what I was trying to do. <laughs> and also my brother was still managing at the time. So I was sort of his right-hand woman, um, which gave me a bit more freedom in time to be able to to work with my dogs. And he was great. Like He'd say, all right, how long do you need these wieners held in to educate them before we'll look at processing them and putting them out in the paddock? Um, and I say, oh, can I, I need two days to work with them and things like that. So um, it was really good. He he really uh, helped me and worked with me to get them going. And, I mean, our cattle was a huge learning serve for our cattle too who'd never been worked with dogs. And Neil said, well, you, if you want to start the easy way, you just educate your heifers. And then in 10 years' time, your whole mob will be educated. You know, well, that's not really my style. So... We went in and we just tried to educate everything, which is it can be done. <laughs> it just makes for some interesting times. So, it, but it was worth it. I mean, where you get to the point where the only cattle that really aren't educated on the station now are the clean skins that we haven't haven't seen come in. So, okay. And again, for our listeners, what's a clean skin? It's just cattle that haven't been handled or marked or. Um, by humans previously. Yeah, okay. And so when Neil was asking you or suggested that you could uh, educate the heifers first, so that's the young females. Yeah. And the idea is that if you educate them, they're going to be around the longest because they've got a longer breeding life. So in 10 years' time, they'll be educated and you would have educated all their babies and all the ones that are currently not educated would have been kind of sold off or – Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. How big of a gamble was it for you to – go and buy those four dogs, which I'm guessing wasn't cheap. I thought, I mean, I, I haven't had bugger all to do with working dogs, but I've 
on occasion someone's sold a dog because they're not a good fit or they're not a match. Like there seems to be a like a like the personality mm-hmm. is really important to the success of the team between the person and the dog. So is there a chance that you could have rocked up there and those dogs and you just like they just you know not click? Yeah, and there was a little bit of that. So. Um, I did get, I got four and I was lucky they'd already been working as a team. Um, a father had them over east and he actually had educated his stock and then decided he didn't need dogs anymore. So he sold them as a team of four. So they already knew each other. They were working together. In that was Flora, who I used to say is my matriarch. And she had already actually passed through a couple of hands just because she was a, a bit more of a sensitive natured dog and but her work was amazing but it was just her personality it took me months to win her over like I remember there was a moment finally finally this dog likes me um but there were two others there was Ange and Julia and I ended up selling them after a couple of years because we just we didn't have that bond like we got along fine but they weren't my forever dogs and that's what I just kept working towards was putting together a team of dogs that I just absolutely couldn't part with because then you've got that 100% bond and you don't have it with all of them the same as you're not going to be best friends with every person that you meet right so it's it has just been a bit of a um you know getting to know some same as as raising pups and then going you know what we're not the best fit for each other and I've had to sell some really good dogs and it can be a really hard thing to acknowledge but going, they're not going to reach their full potential with me. Yeah. I can't give them what they need or we're not the best fit and to move them on. And they're an incredible dog for someone else. Yeah, that's part of it. We've got a, a little co-host who's woken up, deciding whether or not she wants to participate in the podcast. Yeah, I think, um, I guess, yeah, it's lucky it worked out well. Um, I always just wonder about that. Same with, you know, like the nutrient horse sale. People will buy, like, I'm pretty sure you don't get to ride the horses before you buy them. Like, you don't get to necessarily test them out. Then you spend a hundred grand on a horse or f- say even 20 grand on a horse. It might be, oh, ouchy tummy. And now we'll just take another break, guys. We'll be right back. <laughs> I'm glad I noticed that early. So we just started recording again, guys, um, but actually I hadn't hit record. So let's try that again uh, where we've got the children back and we have resumed our roles as milking cows. Um, and, yeah, I'd been asking you, Tish, like what, you know, was it a risk buying dogs that you hadn't, you know, no try before you buy? Is that common? Is that something if they're buying, if someone's buying a dog locally, can you go out and do like a try before you buy? Yeah. Yep, it is. Uh, I was lucky that I just basically I took Neil's word for it because at the end of that school I said, Neil, can you put me together a team of dogs? And uh, it, you can. You can take dogs on trial. I've sold a couple of dogs on trial. Obviously not the dogs that have gone overseas. They haven't been. But, yeah, I just and just trying to fit the right, I suppose, dogs, what people are looking for, trying to really understand what they're looking for in those dogs. And also if it's not the right fit and I find it's not working, I always offer to either take the dog back or help them sell it. But you can, if it works out, I have also sent a couple of dogs on trial to people and they've had them for three weeks and then they can go yay or nay on whether it's going to suit, which is the best way to go. 
in saying that, an older dog can, depending on the dog's personality, they can sometimes take a little bit longer to transfer to another person, start working for them. So, yeah, it all depends a bit on the dog and the people. Where have you sold dogs to? You just said overseas. Yes, I've sold a couple of dogs to Sweden and I've sent one over to France. What was it like the first time you got contacted and someone was like, I want to buy a dog, can you send it to Europe? Were you like, mm, scammer, whatever, bye? <laughs> it was very surreal. And hats off to Max because he actually came out and visited us at the station and we were camped out at like on a far eastern muster. Uh, so he spent like two or three, I think only like two or three days out there with us. And then he headed off again. But we are the middle of nowhere. And it's not like there's any other dogs around in the area to see while you happen to be in the Pilbara. So he did make a special trip to come over and see my dogs. And he's bought three. My dog's now two, definitely two. Um, and I think he's still he's still hanging out for a couple more. So he's essentially wow. going to have my whole Pilbara team in Bloodlines over there in Sweden shortly. But that's he's, pretty cool. Yeah. It's really How long cool. ago was that? I still went over there. He's starting to show Granny's muzzle. So gosh, it must have been like five or six years ago. Six years. And so you've only been doing this about ten years. So I, I guess that's the other thing is. It can take a long time to master a skill, and I'm sure you, you're you the kind of person that would be like, I'm not a master, no, no. <laughs> but you are very good. You're proficient and you're good at what you do with your team. But to have that kind of interest so early on in doing something, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. it, And I have been really lucky. Actually, it makes me laugh when you say I'm proficient. I've been out working these sheep with my dogs for the last few days, and Savannah has been able to sleep through it and it doesn't matter even if I'm yelling at the top of my lungs at my dogs, she just sleeps through it. And I'm like, well, she probably just heard that my whole pregnancy <laughs> is quite used to that now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I have been extremely fortunate. I think a big part of a big, um, I've been really lucky in the dogs that I've, I've acquired uh, and I guess being having that interest in photography, I've been able to share videos and photos of them working and things. So they've had that exposure. But also I always say I'm not a dog trainer. I'm quite lazy in that front. I don't actually enjoy the training process. I want to just be able to go to work. So I do minimal training with my dogs. So I really rely on dogs who have a lot of natural instinct but also have the temperament that won't, they're not too hard-headed because I don't want to be fighting with them all day. I do have one very hard-headed dog out there called Cash, and we do fight all day. But, yeah, I really need dogs that have that nature who who want to work, have the skill, um, and who want to work with you as a part of the team. And I think that has actually held, held me up really well with my pups because I am breeding pups who have a good nature who seem to fit well into most homes and situations and also have all that natural instinct you know, that to, to go to work. So my pups have landed really well in a huge range of homes and I do try and give priority to working homes but some do have also gone to agility and are doing really well in that front as well. So I um, I can really resonate with what you just said about like, I just want to get dogs that like, you don't want to spend ages training. You just want to, I'm like, that's me and like most <laughs> things in life. Because <laughs> I was going to, that that was where I was hoping to go next is, you know, you live remote on a property 
Um, and even say, even if your driveway wasn't 90k, say you were two kilometers off the bitumen, you're still far from the towns and those towns aren't necessarily full of people with working dogs. So you go to the Neil McDonald school, you you go and pick up your dogs. I know on the way back on this road trip with your dogs, you um <laughs> Oh, babies are so funny. Um, you got to see him in the territory briefly. But then you go home, you don't have anyone there to be like, this isn't and and I find that so because I've done a Neil McDonald school. Um and like I just find, and even when I teach people photography, like you kind of sometimes you just need someone there to be like, okay, so you like they're like, all right, A B C D, this is how you do it. So you go and do it, and then it doesn't work, and but you need something like, oh, but see, actually, you didn't do B quite right, or you've done C before. Like someone, how do you, how did you get to where you are with your dogs when you didn't have access to people or to mm. trainers to mentors? Like you're just out there on your own, winging it. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Are you that first year was so tough. And I think it's one of those ones that you get to the other side of and go, heck, like, I'm I'm glad I don't have to do that again. There was some – we had so much to learn and I was so lost. But uh, Courtney was a great help in that we used to send videos to each other. So that used to really keep us motiv- – like, keep me motivated and help because she was obviously a lot further ahead with her dogs than me. Um, so we'd send videos of each other and we'd set up courses and challenges and, you know, we'd try and do the bow race with the trainer mob and things like that. So that helped. Just having that other that other person there to, that you're doing it with and also when things, when the wheels really fell off and I was having a bit of a rough week and the dogs were chasing my pet roo and the potty calves and the horses and we were just having a bit of a rough time. And I said something about it on facebook and friends of mine who had dogs like wendy courtney darren brown like we had these other friends who had teams of dogs that were on the same page and they're like we've all been there we have all been there we've all hit those same hurdles we've all had to learn those same things like it's normal it's part of it you're fine you're doing great you're still getting there and gave me some tips and things and it actually made such a huge difference because i was like i'm not alone this is normal this is fine we're gonna get there it's just part of it you know, and and then also you, you're part of that community. And the dog world is an amazing world. There's some really wonderful people out there. And then the other thing I did was kept inviting Neil back <laughs> to, and I'd host schools at home and go to as many. So I God, I can't even remember. I don't even know how many schools I've done of his now. And just being able to keep going back and doing schools was, yeah, well worth it. All right, so we're just going to take a break again because I have got a – Number two nappy to attend to. Lucky you. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back yet again. Um, For those of you who are playing along at home, it actually wasn't a number two nappy. And just as I um, sat back down to start recording and I realised that I was in a bit on autopilot and I was like, I go to Tish, oh, that wasn't a number two nappy. And I was so disappointed because she hasn't pooped since Damn the day before I, yesterday. Too much info. <laughs> well, you know, people playing along at home, they might care about my child's bowel movements. Anyway, so back to the dogs. Um, obviously, you're learning with the dogs. The cattle are learning at the same time. How did that – how long do you think it took before you felt like you'd actually started to see a, a result in your cattle? 
probably uh, probably 12 months before you, I suppose. I mean, it would have been happening before then, but by 12 months you're like, okay, now I feel like we're actually starting to get the hang of this. Yeah. Um, there were We definitely had a lot of sort of older cows who needed a lot of re-education and had a lot of bad habits to break, and that's partly why Neil said start with your heifers and your younger cattle because they're a lot easier to train than older cattle who are already in habits, but bad habits. Um, but, yeah, nothing makes me madder than cattle who, <laughs> who, you know, would deliberately run back through you just as you're shutting the gate and things like that. So we were trying to really pull up on that and um, get them behaving themselves. So we had a lot of fun in that way. And how did you go about integrating the dogs in? Obviously, the more you can do with your dogs, the less people you need. So it's not like the next year you just didn't have a crew. I mean, you obviously still need people in the yards. So how do you go about kind of making that transition? I think the biggest part of that is I was able to do so many more things on my own. So in, you know, a paddock that we'd normally have to go and have three or four people out there on as ground crew to go and get those cattle in, and we'd still have trouble. Once we had the stock educated to dogs, I could go out there with my team of dogs and I could get that mob of cattle in. So it was things like that, I suppose, was where there was the biggest benefit. Um, And then also there'll be the times when you go out and you go, oh, there's cattle here in the wrong paddock. Um, I could just put off a couple of dogs and put them through the gate and put them back out where they're meant to be instead of going, right, I've got to go home and I've got to get a bike and I'll have to get someone else to help me and things like that. So I once you've had, like once I've had dogs and was working with them and got used to having them there, I actually don't know. I don't know how people run a property without them because they just made my life so much easier. And there is a time commitment. You know, I'm with them. I If they're not working, I'm letting them out of the kennels morning and night every single day. So there is that time commitment with the dogs. But I guess it's, you know, a lot of people have that same passion for the horses. It's huge time commitment to use horses in your mustering camp and and to have them and to look after them. And for me, it's it's it comes easy for my dogs. It never came that easy with me for horses. They weren't my passion. When it's your passion, it's easy. When you are mustering a paddock with just you and your dogs, how do you handle that? I'm just thinking like a lot of musters, you know, if you coach your mustering, so people, you've got your main people with the mob and then motorbikes will zip out all over the place and the helicopter's pointing out cattle for them to bring back into the main mob. With dogs, I'm guessing like you can't send them, like how far out of eyesight can you send them? It's oh. not like you can be like, go two Ks that way and bring in that bull for me. Cause, and do, and do you, yeah. you don't have anything in the sky when you're mustering with dogs, do you? No. So and how do they not perish as well? That's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, most you try and do most of your work, I suppose, in the cooler months or you do it in the morning mm-hmm. because by the afternoon in summer, you, there's so much residue ground heat. Um, I It's more of trapping, I suppose. You know, you shut your water off or you shut the gate so your cattle are coming in rather than you can't go. I can't go out and clear a big paddock with the dogs. Even, a you know, depending on your sizing, I suppose, but it's more you have your cattle come in and then you use your dogs to hold them and put them in the yards. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, if your cattle want to misbehave, if they run from one end to the other of, you know, say this water point, they run from one end of the water point to the other and back again, your dogs are doing double the distance because they have to get in front of the cattle at each end. So it doesn't take long for cattle to be able to run the legs off the dogs. 
And you have to be really careful not to have, like, not to let them overheat or to ask too much of them because then your cat will have a win too. Once your dogs get tired, you know, they, they do. They only have so much stamina. Um, and, and cattle have an incredible amount of stamina. So a lot of it is actually mind games and you're trying to sort of get into the head of the cattle. And because you, you've got a 20 kilo kelpie against a 500 kilo cow. It's it's all bluff at the end of the day. With the success you've had, and I guess, and the ultimate goal is to educate your cattle to respond to dogs and to move off their pressure, but not necessarily bolt away from them. Is there a risk that they'll be out in the paddock one day grazing and there might be a pack of dingoes or wild dogs lurking by and they won't? be as concerned about them because they're used to being worked with your team of dogs? It's probably the most common concern I heard. And I guess it's the one that my dad was most worried about was by educating our wieners, are we making them more susceptible to dingoes? And I don't believe that we are at all. So what we're trying to teach, we're not trying to teach the cattle that, you know, dogs are fine, dogs aren't going to hurt you and dingoes are safe. You just, you're trying to take the fear out of the situation. You want them to respect dogs. So you don't, you know, a wiener is still going to walk up to a dingo and stick its nose out, same as what it does to my dogs. But if it does it to my dogs, it's going to get a nip on the nose. It's going to go back to the mob and it's not going to do it again. If it does it to a dingo, it can be a whole different ending. You know, so also with the cows, you want to educate them so that if they're, if they have those dingoes coming up and, and posing a threat, they know that to just pick up their calves, the calves know to just tuck in next to mum, walk alongside close, and they'll be okay. It's the cows who are overprotective, who are turning around and trying to fight the dogs, who are tripping over and knocking over their calf, injuring it, tearing from one side of the paddock to the other, chasing these dogs that then makes their calves vulnerable. So... Those cows might look like they're being good mothers, but they're actually not being, uh, their calves aren't the best protected. So you want to just educate your stock so you can take that fear out of it. I guess it's like, you know, if you have, have a lot of mums in a situation that something goes wrong, it's the ones who stay calm, who can gather all the kids together and go, right, we're all just going to stay calm. We're going to get out of this building. Everything will be okay. It's not the mum who's running around screaming her head off in fright who's, you know, the best one for the situation. So it's all part of educating the cattle to res- to recognise the danger and then how to best behave around that to be safe. So speaking of dogs and different types of dogs and the role of predators, you, you branched out from Kelpie dogs or Kelpie, sorry, as working dogs to Maramas at well, tell me when did you do that and can you explain for anyone that hasn't seen a marama what they look like and what <laughs> their role on the station is because they have a very different job to the kelpies big white and fluffy is what they look like giant this is a giant uh, well i thought see i thought they were giants and then i got an anatolian shepherd and the maramas are not big anymore <laughs> like, yeah that dog's like a lion <laughs> <laughs> he's like a little mini pony uh we got i got two pups in 2019 was the first two guardian dogs I got. And then I got another one in, oh, I think a year later. Um, and now there is 
five of them out in the paddock with the weaners up at the station. So they live with our young stock as they're freshly weaned. They go out with the guardian dogs and we're still, it's still a learning curve. Like we're still learning, you know, um, shifting, like shifting paddocks and shifting the dogs with the calves and things like that. So, but in saying that, we have seen a significant reduction in dingo bites on our wean. It's a huge reduction. <laughs> Why are you sniffing there, Steph? I, I think we might have had our number two, but mm-hmm. it's just weird because I haven't heard it. And normally it's a, you really get an announcement like. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't think it is, but we'll see. Uh, how did you come across Maramas? And again, like. How do you – I know, yes, they would have, like, the instinct to, to be guardians, but I'm sure it's not like these two dogs just rock up and you're like, okay, this is your paddock, stay here. These are, like, your charges that you're looking after. Like, how do you go about being like, these are the little cows, you need to love them, don't let anything get near them? Like, Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fun. So bonding, you've just got to basically – they have the instinct to bond, especially if you're getting them from <sighs> – yeah, you know, same with kelpies. You go and find someone who's using them in the way that you want them to be used, so that you've got that instinct there from the right genetics, and you've got to then bond them with those livestock. And the livestock also need to learn to trust those dogs too, and bond to them. So we started with potty calves, and then um, we just kept increasing the number of calves that were in the mob until they were all out into the paddock together, and we really need to rely on their bond and their understanding of their job and their desire to be with the cattle because we don't obviously have any fences that will hold dogs in. Um, We try not to bring them to the house too much because obviously that's a lot more comfortable than the paddock and we didn't want them at the house, though I do have one who lives at the house, which was Angel. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see. It's amazing to watch them want to be out there with their stock and you see them split up. They have their own group dynamics. One will be with one little mob, another with another mob, or then there'll be two or three together. Um, we have feeding stations out in the paddock near the water point. That's the main water point for the paddock. Um, so that they, and we just top that up with dry feed. We take out bones and meat to them. Uh, they're all able to be handled. Like I don't believe that it's a set and forget. Like there's no reason why they can't have the same manners as any other dog and and the working dogs. So they can all be caught, obviously some a little bit easier than others. It depends on their personality. I try and trim all their nails because even though they're out there on the hard ground, the nails still grow like crazy. And probably one of the biggest concerns that people have is wouldn't they get hot because they've got this long, white, fluffy coat. But to be honest, I actually think they handle the heat better than my black kelpies some days because the white reflects the heat and their coat acts as insulation. And they usually spend the majority of the hot part of the day sitting around a water point, also known as sitting in the trough. So <laughs> they really do handle it a lot better than I. Than I'd I say it would, would be a really easy assumption to make because they look like princess dogs. Like, yes, they're giant, <laughs> but they're pure white and very fluffy. Oh, they're the cutest pups. They are. They're like oh. little fluffy polar bears. <laughs> yeah. So at the time of getting into or thinking oh, I want to get some maramas, was there anybody else on Station Country that you knew of that was using them in that way? So 
I hadn't really thought about guardians until Courtney and I did our road trip in 2015 and we saw them, we went to a, a farm for a dog school and we saw marimas being used there with uh, goats, sheep. I think she had some for cattle as well. And so it was from that lady that I got my first two pups. But it took me another four years before we, because I sort of saw that and went, yeah, I actually, I, this looks awesome. I reckon we can make this work. It took me another four years to get to the point where I actually bit the bullet and got those dogs. Um, but it was in in the drought that we were just getting hammered by dingoes. So every four days our wieners would be blowing through a fence and you could see wieners coming in that had been dingo bit um, and you were putting them down. Um, we started running just a couple of cows out with our, and we still do with the wieners, and we find that that's also a really good settling helps them to settle it just gives them that adult to take a bit of the flight out but yeah we just sort of bit the bullet and went like there needs to be we need to do something try and do something and I especially having the dogs like I've I love dogs and I've grown up you know seeing what dingoes can do but they're part of the landscape and I really want to just try and find a way that we can live with them it's not us or them let's just hey let's try and all live here together so if our wieners are the most vulnerable, second to the calves. So if we can educate our cows to look after the calves when they have them, if we can have some guardian dogs out there to help look after our wieners after we wean them, then we're doing our bit to try and, and protect our cattle from the dingoes without it being a, hey, your, dog, your dingoes can't live here anymore because they were here a lot longer, a lot more long time before we were. So. I just think it's really cool how you've just – done these things that other people in the area aren't doing like you know no one it, it's it say somebody else was already doing it it's still hard enough to go and do it and see I'll be like oh, I want to try and do that at my place but when no one else is doing it like obviously people do it but not in your area not in your context um I just think that takes a lot more courage I just love that you just keep <laughs> thanks I, I, I haven't know. really looked at it like that yeah like you're kind of like the first one you know or, uh, yeah well, I know Courtney has like a team of working dogs and she's used them out. Like, and there are definitely pl- plenty of like contractors out there that do weaner educating with dogs and stuff. But like for you in your area, mm. like you didn't know of anyone else and you hadn't seen it done. And that would be more than enough to be like, well, nah, shit, that can't be done here. Like, And maybe it's a little bit of a, the bonus of social media sort of ramping up a bit more at the same time, I suppose, because I was able to see even if it wasn't happening at home, I was able to – sort of be involved, talk to people and see it being done elsewhere and that that also helps rather than going, well, yeah, it's I wasn't able to see anyone close by doing it, but yeah, I I guess that's just where my passion for dogs is just expanding to how else can I use them. <laughs> see, and this is what I love about and I often say like with these podcasts, there's something we can all take away from them, even though it might not feel like it, like not I'd say not everyone listening is going to be like, I'm going to go get dogs now. But it's that idea of just because something isn't being done doesn't mean it can't be Mm. or if it's been done but you don't think it can be done in your context, it can be. So great lesson for our listeners. Now, I will let you go soon. Promises, Um, promises. Yeah, well, (laughs) anyway. Uh, But I just want to change pace a little bit. Mm -hmm. As as we've mentioned a few times, there's babies here with us, but – can't make a baby without <laughs> like a second person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did say um, 
<laughs> hey, baby. Um, you are, yeah, it has been hard to get you out to social events. Mm. And uh, in true Tish style, you didn't even have to leave the station to find your partner. Mm. So <laughs> tell us the story of how you met Adam, please. Yeah, so Adam was driving trucks for the transport company that we were using when we were in drought and shifting a lot of cattle off our property, um, basically while we were destocking. So a poor fella, he did not see the place at its best at all. Um, so he did a couple of loads, a couple of trips for us, and we just started talking as friends. And then it was a few months later, and um. Yeah, we met up on the road, actually. I was heading south and he was heading north and I was started having car trouble. Well, car trouble, I was having the engine light come on on the ute, which wasn't great, um, but managed to get down to, I think it was Billabong, about 11 o'clock at night. So our first date was sitting on top of the stock crates. On his stock crates, he was empty heading north and... Um, yeah, so we just had, had a couple of drinks sitting on the catwalk of a stock crate. You had drinks while you – okay, do, no one do this at home. It is – I get terror. I've only been up there a few times. You're on the it's catwalk. Terrifying. You're only going to fall six foot into the – You could have fallen deck. off the truck like six <laughs> metres. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you People, know me, Steph. I would have been proper drunk too. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm learning – oh, Baba. I'm learning all these things about you that I didn't know. No, it was very sweet because he'd asked earlier, he's like, what do you drink? And he'd also bought my favourite ice cream, but it was so freaking cold that all we had was <laughs> a couple of drinks and then that was enough. So, And then it just went from there. So that was four years ago. I thought there was a, a yarn that you somehow lured him to the station and then this station that was in drought had rain and that he couldn't leave. Don't miss that. Don't leave out yeah. that part of the story, Atisha. Yeah. So the first time, first time he was coming in actually, and we we had rain. We had five mils of rain, and so we had just mustered, and we end up having to ring and say, "Ah, oh, you might just want to wait a day." So poor fella had to spend, I think, a day sitting in Carnarvon before he could come in. Um, so, yeah, it really isn't much of a story. Oh, I I'm thought it was the other way around. I thought he came in, then it rained, no. and he got stuck at the station for a day. No, though it did mean that he didn't turn up that same morning to load. He did turn up the afternoon before, and he gave us a hand with some cattle work. I think I even um, offered to show him how to do some preg testing. <laughs> <laughs> so he, we had him in there, like, marking wieners. And Hi, Adam, nice to meet you. Would you like me to show you how to get elbow deep in a cow? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, he was he was happy to try anything. Clearly it worked because you're holding his child now. <laughs> so a uh, dating tip for anyone out there. <laughs> That's right. Preg testing is the way to go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, yes, so as we go towards the end, you, um, like I said at the beginning, we've both had our babies like a week or so apart. You were a very stealth pregnancy. I didn't even know until we were, what, six months in or something. That's only because Courtney let it slip. (laughs) But that was only because you were going to be coming up to the territory for her wedding. So I would have seen you anyway. But um, yeah, you didn't, I don't think you even posted it on your page until afterwards. Like you're very, again, like very private, very stealth. I mean, you share so much of your life. It's fair enough to keep that. But we, yeah, so we only started like kind of were communicating about our pregnancies probably halfway through because that's when I knew. But it was really interesting 
because you were on the station for your whole pregnancy and I was mm. in town in the territory. Um, and like we've said, you know, long driveway, far from town. Uh, you actually, like, yeah, just tell me a bit about what it was like because you got to do a lot of things from home. Yeah. Like your um, appointments and stuff. Yeah. Whereas I was, like, mm. I live two kilometres from the hospital, so. <laughs> I was um, lucky we had, is it called a Hero app and it came in, I think, in COVID or they had it before COVID but it really became popular in COVID. So every week, I think it was once a week, um, I would have to check in with my heart rate and um, listen to baby's heart rate and my mood and things and we did a lot of it by that. So I really didn't actually have any appointments between I think it was 12 weeks and gosh, would I have another one? 24 weeks or? No, I, I had the 20 weeks, scan. Yeah, so. See, that's wild yeah. because I had to go, I think it was oh. like, yeah, you got, there's a couple in the first trimester, second trimester, and then once you hit 28 weeks, I had to go in every two weeks or every, mm. and then at, and then at, towards the end you go in every week. So we didn't do that. And even when we moved down here, it was still, so I, um, they were happy for me to leave it from the basically the 20-week scan to we came till we came down at. I was meant to be down at 34 weeks. I think we came down at 38. But, yeah, no, it was – and I was I was lucky though. Like it was a very smooth sailing. We didn't have any any complications or any issues. So very, very fortunate. I had I had a planned like a whole episode for us to talk about like comparing our pregnancy <laughs> experiences. But I just <laughs> think with the state so of my child right now and the fact that we've been trying to record this for almost two hours, three hours – Two o'clock. Yeah, two hours probably. Um, I think we've done well. Yeah, all things considered. I think we'll just have to do another one. What do you think? Yeah, another time. Another sixties time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, my baby, who is a unicorn baby and never cries, is crying. So I she think that's a, a very much a unicorn baby. Okay. Well, you Savannah know, makes up for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as an avid listener of the podcast. Oh, Bubba. <laughs> Hang on, Bubby. You're in here. It's a rough look. What's this? Oh, wow, shiny things will do great. Great. Oh, my God, now she's just like got a biggest smile on her face looking at things hanging. I reckon you're on borrowed time. Yeah, I know. Okay, so very quickly, um, as somebody who listens to every episode, I hope. Every single one. You would know the final question, which is looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Oh, can I be really corny and say – don't be afraid of change. Um, probably that's my biggest thing. It's, I, it, it's the hugest change we just went through. It's moving down here, having a baby, like moving house, leaving the family property. Um, couldn't have actually gone through any more changes than that, I suppose. Um, but it's we've only got one life, so you can't really go, hey, next time around, I want to try living somewhere else. <laughs> You've only got one shot, so do it. 